Good evening, one and all, and welcome to the Signum Symposium, all about Sir Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy and his ongoing Book of Dust trilogy. We are here tonight celebrating the new release of Book Two in the Book of Dust, Volume Two, I should say, because it's Volume Two of one book. Um, it's The Secret Commonwealth. It came out just yesterday. It's still got that new book smell. It's fresh off the uh, the press. Uh, we've only just got our copies. We're not going to be delving in too much um, to this book um, because we haven't read it yet and we want to take our time with it and we don't want to spoil things for people who are behind and so on. But we are going to be celebrating this new release um, by talking about um, Philip Pullman's work more generally and, and uh, hopefully answering some questions about it. And as always, if you are attending this live, uh, it's wonderful to see you out here tonight. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Do um, get involved, um, type out your questions, your comments. We'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, before I introduce our lovely panel, I would just like to say a few things about Signum University because we are in the middle of our annual fundraising campaign. Um, as you may know, we don't usually go on about fundraising at Signum because we um, you know, prefer to talk about, you know, orcs and demons and uh, witches and witchcraft. Um, but once a year, we do uh, remind people that we are uh, an educational institution, non-profit that does rely on the support of donors and um, needs donations on occasion. Um, and the theme for this year's annual fund Fundraising is the next adventure because it's it's all about um, what's coming up for Signum University. Um, for those of you who don't know, who are coming from outside the university, this is a, a, an online institution. Um, you can find out more at signumuniversity.org. You can also find out more about how to donate uh, if you would like to donate at signumuniversity.org forward slash fund. And there you will see lots of information about where money would go, and uh, different rewards that you can get um, for donating different amounts and things like that. It explains it in full detail. Um, Signum University is not like Jordan College, Oxford, made famous by the work of Philip Pullman. Um, Jordan College is the grandest and richest of all the colleges in Oxford. It has expanded underground since the Middle Ages. Uh, it, it is said to be possible to walk to Bristol in one direction and London in the other whilst never leaving college land. Uh, and the Dons, the fellows of the college, like to drink Tokay wine. Signum University, on the other hand, is online, it's independent, it relies on donations to function as well, um, just basic stuff like uh, uh, the, the uh, web space and um, the kind of the, the web tools that we use to give broadcasts such as this one. Um, the professors drink coffee rather than Tokyo wine, so we're much uh, cheaper to run than Jordan College. Uh, and it's not for me to say where you should give your donations, but I think Jordan College has enough money from the sounds of it. Uh, while Signum could probably use your money a bit more. So perhaps consider donating to Signum University rather than Jordan College Oxford. It's also very expensive to send money to an alternative reality through PayPal. So consider that as well. 
anyway, just wanted to give the, the plug to the fundraising campaign before we get into tonight's very exciting discussion of Philip Pullman's work. Um, and I have the great pleasure in introducing our illustrious panel tonight. So firstly, we have Faith Acker, who holds a PhD from the University of St. Andrews, where she wrote her doctoral thesis on the second edition of Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, she's taught at various universities in the UK and the States, including Signum University, uh, where she recently ran the course, The Life and Times of the English Epic, featuring F Philip Pullman's The Subtle Knife, which is book two of his Dark Materials trilogy. Uh, uh, Faith will be a library fellow at the Folger Shakespeare Library, um, where, which is, I think, where you are now. Is that right, Faith? Are you there, Faith? Indeed, yes. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, yes, oh, I'm at the Folger this this fall and having a splendid time reading lots of old books. Fantastic. And then you're moving on to the Benique Library, if I'm saying that right? The Beinecke, yeah. The Beinecke Library. And then you're going to be going on to the Bodleian Library. Uh, yes. in Oxford, um, and you're doing research on examining the portrayals of servants and tradesmen in 17th century poetical miscellanies. Yes. Fantastic. In real Oxford, rather than <laughs> alternate reality Oxford. Although who knows where your research might take you. Um, Indeed. And um, uh, moving on to Chris Swank, um, who is a preceptor at Signum University, uh, focusing on talking studies and imaginative literature courses. Um, Chris is currently precepting Modern Fantasy One, um, but I think soon to precept Modern Fantasy Two in the next term. Um, uh, somebody is. I don't. I don't think that's me. Uh, okay. Well, um, we'll talk a bit about um, the kind mm -hmm. of fantasy courses at Signum, um, and uh, you're doing Modern Fantasy One at the moment. Um, you're also the library director at Puma Community College in Tuscan, Arizona and a postgraduate student at the University of Glasgow, studying with Dr. Dimitra Fimi. Uh, and you have published in Tolkien Studies, Myth Law, the Journal of Tolkien Research, and a dozen edited collections. Um, Chris's essay, The Child's Voyage and the Imram Tradition in Lewis, Tolkien and Pullman will be published any day now in Myth Law, uh, vo uh, volume 135. So this is a, an article that compares C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien and Philip Pullman. Um, it's about to come out any day now, so that's Yay. I'd love to talk to you about that a little bit later. Um, and thirdly, we've got Wesley Shantz, uh, who works as a substitute teacher in in Spokane, Washington. Is that right, uh, Wesley? I've got that. The, it's Spokane, <laughs> Spokane, isn't it? You say Spokane. I don't know why. Spokane. <laughs> Spokane. I don't know. It, I, 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 your biography is full of um, names I don't um, understand, so I'm going to keep on going and then you can tell me uh, how I've mispronounced them. Um, you, um, you've worked at the, the, the Writing Centre at Washington College and the Graduate Writing Assistant at St. John's College, Annapolis. And, it, and you have been doing a podcast series for about a year now, um, looking at Philip Pullman's his dark materials, and I believe you're about halfway through the subtle knife. I, yes, roughly uh, midpoint of the series, and uh, I've got the big third book ahead, which I'm really looking forward to digging into again because um, I haven't read it as much as the other two. Um, it's it's a really fun project, and and you've participated in it a couple of times now. So thanks thanks for it's, that. 
It's a fantastic podcast. Um, and so if you go to what, what's the best way of accessing the podcast? It's, it's a, any, um, any podcast provider should have it. If you, if you search for this weird title, a book warm, not book warm, like a, a dragon, right? But book warm, like the, the temperature book warm, all one word, um, that should come up and, um, you can find it that way. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you very much, all three of you, for coming out tonight. I should mention myself as well. My name's Gabriel. Um, I am a preceptor and lecturer at Signum University. I did my PhD at Oxford University, where I live. Uh, I've lived in Oxford all my life. I've been a fan of Philip Pullman since I was a teenager, uh, since I was about 12. Uh, and uh, very excited um, to talk about Philip Pullman tonight. Um, and we've got a comment from Sharon who says, I haven't read anything by Philip Pullman yet. Sell it to me. Uh, that's fantastic to hear because uh, one of the reasons for doing tonight's event is partly to, um, to collectively discuss Philip Pullman's work uh, with fans, um, but also to talk to people who haven't read his work yet um, and to uh, for, for them to maybe they've heard of Philip Pullman, they want to see what the fuss is about. Um, and hopefully we can do a good job of that tonight. So um, let's just launch in, I think. Um, Wesley, you, you know, we talked a little bit about your podcast. Uh, you must have spent about 50 hours going through his dark materials. Why did you pick Philip Pullman? And uh, why are you keep, go uh, what, what makes you keep going through these books? Yeah, I, I love these books as a kid, um, have returned to them over the years to reread. And um, now that he's coming out with his new sequels, prequels, he calls them equals in some places. Yeah. Uh, there, there's this kind of um, excitement, you know, um, in the air uh, as the, uh, the new um, HBO series is coming out too, produced mm. by the BBC, right? Um, and uh, I think he even had some advertisements for it at the uh, end of the Game of Thrones, right? So that's, you know, put him back on the map um, these days. And I, so I was inspired by Corey Olson and Signum and Mythgard and the kinds of things he does with Tolkien. Um, wanted to try my hand at making podcasts and got together with some friends um, and just sort of jumped into it. Um, the first ones I made were about video games that I played growing up because I thought that would be sort of like a new area for people to study. Um, turns out there's actually a whole lot of stuff about those already. Um, and fun as it was, it wasn't really breaking any new ground. Uh, but, you know, it's a it's an interest of mine. Um, so the game Earthbound for Super Nintendo was the first thing. And then I thought, you know, a good sort of um, counterpart to that was the work of Philip Pullman as something that was you know, really formation um, uh, for me as a, a person growing up and being that age, being the age of the characters in the book, um, made me sort of think about um, what it means to grow up. And so mm. that's kind of the lens that I've taken with it. Um, his relationships between his characters within themselves and their demons, these kind of um, embodiments of their, their soul or something like that, their conscience um, has been kind of the thing I've tried to focus on as I'm rereading it um, and how that develops and how it reflects some things about telling stories, about um, knowing and believing, um, about innocence and experience, these kinds of things. So there's a ton of stuff in these books. Um, I've tried to get in touch with scholars who have published in these areas and, and 
kind of enter into conversation to get out of my own head a little bit and and um, see what other people have thought and, and said already and uh, and yeah it's it's been a really fun project um, one that I hope uh, brings more attention to the books and more scholarly interest in them perhaps um, but that, that that's up to the audience I guess well yeah and I think you you put that so well that um... For you, though, though, these books have been formative, and I think uh, I, I would agree with that. For me as well, I'm, I read these as a as a teenager and as a young adult, and they really helped shape my consciousness um, in ways that other books haven't done. Because um, I grew up with Harry Potter at the same time, and I love Harry Potter in a different way. Um, but for me, Philip Pullman is is the kind of the great, profound, uh, influential writer. And you touched on why that was because you know, he, he talks about such big topics um, in his books. Um, you know, it, it's touching on these big ideas. And you also mentioned about demons. So just to explain, um, a, a demon is an, has the appearance of an animal and it's a manifestation of your soul. Um, Northern Lights, which is the first book in his Dark Materials trilogy, you may know it as The Golden Compass, which is the title it was given in America. Northern Lights, um, tells uh, is set in this alternate reality version of Oxford uh, where everyone has these demons which are these manifestations of their souls um, and for children their demons can turn into different animals for um, adults their demons are settled into one shape so it's a really interesting way of exploring different ideas um, Faith I, I, I don't know if you, you've sort of uh, you know if, if feel the same way that Wesley and I have felt about Philip Pullman, that it was formative and so it's such a profound uh, mixture of ideas. Actually, for me, it was quite the opposite. And I see you have some things about religion on here on mm. your list of potential topics. Um, but I was quite hostile to Pullman the first few times I encountered him, which was actually in college as an undergraduate in a fantasy course where we read him alongside another uh, a number of other authors, including Harry Potter, um, and also uh, some works by T.H. White. It was a lovely span of fantasy, and it took quite a long time, and I think it, it really a lot of work for me to mature as a reader before I came back to Pullman with a new appreciation. Um, I've okay. always thought he was a brilliant writer, um, and I actually love his children's work, which I'm sad we won't be talking about, but The Firework Maker's Daughter is probably one of my favorite books in the world. So if you mm -hmm. want a fun thing to start Pullman with, um, especially for those of you who are really new to Pullman, I'd really recommend that. Although the uh, Northern Lights and Spoke of Dust are a lot of fun as well. Yeah, and I agree with about the children's works. Um, although it's interesting that you you refer to the children's works as if his Dark Materials isn't part of that, which I, I know where you're coming from, but sometimes they are also lumped in with children's literature, aren't they? It's funny because when I was in college, I bought all three of the books. We only read, I think, I think we must have read The Golden Compass in my course, but I wrote a paper on Pullman. 
And at the time at which I drove to Borders, which was still alive then, I think they're gone now, and mm. purchased the book, you could buy The Golden Compass, because it's America, with that title, in the children's section with a polar bear on the cover. And in fact, that's the copy I have. And then you could buy it in the teen section with the golden compass on the cover. It looks a lot more like the one you've got up on the screen. And then you could buy it in the adult section with this sort of glossy uh, bronze cover that looks a lot more like my amber spyglass cover. Uh, so they've they've really done a fantastic job of marketing it for yeah. all ages. But I think the what I'm what I'm counting as children's literature is much simpler in its scope and more playful, I think, than mm -hmm. the Golden Compass and the Northern Lights. Yeah. I mean, something like Clockwork is, I, I think, an incredible story. And that's an, another one of Philip Pullman's works. A again, another really good one to, to start with if you're new to Philip Pullman. Um, well, what about, what about you, Chris? Where, where, where do you fit in with Philip Pullman? Uh, I didn't find Pullman until I was an old adult. I think I'm older than all of you folks, and um, had already spent quite a bit of time reading Tolkien and Lewis and Rowling. And like Faith, I was, I loved Northern Lights, Golden Compass. It's the same book, just two different titles. Um, I loved it. And then The Subtle Knife, I was really intrigued by. It. And then I got to The Amber Spyglass, and I hated it. And I think that happens to quite a few people. Um, and I put it down and I walked away. His writing is great, but I didn't like where he went with the story. And then I just kind of came around that I don't have to agree with every author on every point, right? I don't have to, I don't have to have his same worldview, but I loved his world building. I love his writing and I went back to it and read it a second time and I just, I just fell in love with it the second time. So um, I know Sharon, I'm probably not selling it to you by telling you I hated <laughs> the Emperor's Spyglass, but it's really deep and rich and it's the kind of thing you can read as a, as a child and get something out of it and read it as a teenager and get something more out of it and then go back as an adult and have some really interesting conversations in your head with mm -hmm. what he's writing about. Religion, yeah. the way the world works, um, conversations with Milton basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Milton and, and Blake as well. And, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, 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 in some ways written in opposition to C.S. Lewis and, and even Tolkien as well, um, just been to a certain the extent. He's C.S. Lewis, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He goes in a different uh, direction from the same starting point. Right. That's a that's a very good way of putting it, actually, yeah. I, I want to jump in because you've mentioned mm. Milton, and I love Milton. And I think the thing that turned me back to the Amber Spyglass favorably was actually rereading this for my epic class last year. And reading it right after Paradise Lost and finding all these wonderful subtle parallels. And I think somewhere, I don't remember where now, but Pullman said that this is actually a the Milton for teenagers, I think. And it, it does a really nice job of retelling the same story and hitting many of the same plot points, but of course going in a very different direction at the end. Right. Yeah. So we, we've been skirting around the issue a little bit of religion. And I, I think we maybe you should fill that in for the listeners, um, especially those who aren't so familiar with Pullman's work. Um, one of the characteristics of this alternate Oxford is that the um, organized church in that world, the, the form of Christianity called, uh, which they call the magisterium, is a kind of... Um, 
despotic um, authoritative regime. Um, and by the time, by, by, by the point when, by, when you get to the amber spyglass, Pullman is making a much broader point about God and religion and um, re rebelling against God and uh, the Adam and Eve story. Um, and, you know, without giving away details or, or spoilers, the thrust of it is that Adam and Eve were right. You know, good, good for Eve to, um, to, to eat off the tree of knowledge. Uh, what's wrong with knowledge? What's wrong with growing up? Um, rebel against tyranny, that, that kind of thing, which is obviously a different kind of approach to uh, how C.S. Lewis went about it. And, he, and I suppose um, Milton as well. Uh, you sort of hinted at that faith that kind of they end up in different conclusions. Is, is that fair to say about Milton that he would have, he wouldn't have approved of Philip Pullman's um, conclusion? I don't want to speak for Milton, but <laughs> I certainly think he would have been, he would have, have had some real trouble, I think, with the conclusions mm -hmm. to the Amber Spyglass in particular. There's a lot. Philip Pullman isn't, I don't want to say he's hostile to religion. I think in one of his early interviews quite a long time ago, he called himself a Book of Common Prayer atheist. So he's very familiar with the trappings of our, especially the modern day Episcopalian church in England or the Church of England. Um, but he certainly has many issues with the way that the church is run and many of the ways that theology mm -hmm. is presented. And that comes through very strongly. Um, and I've had many religious students and even myself when I was younger respond very strongly and very negatively to Pullman. And I, I don't want to say that Milton would have responded to the same way, um, but I think he would have had some serious concerns about where things go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, can I just jump in, please, uh, Gabriel? With The second time I read it, I realized that Pullman, who sometimes calls himself an atheist and sometimes an agnostic, and he's mm. like, whatever, I'm a whatever. Um, it's not necessarily rebelling against God. It's rebelling against organized religion that gets too totalitarian and encourages through force its followers not to think for themselves. So I think that's where I really turned around on the Amber Spyglass is Pullman wasn't saying anti-God, he was saying anti-organized religion that's too strict. Okay, yeah. That's kind of where I think he, he wound up. Yeah. And, no. yeah. and if I can jump back in, I think mm -hmm. one of the other things that a colleague recently pointed out to me is that most of the anti-organized religion very carefully happens in another universe. So mm -hmm. he's very precise with which religion he's criticizing. He's not attacking our any of our modern churches. Um, he's attacking this other sort of I don't want to quite call it a straw man, but it's sort of a straw man that he set up because it's hard to imagine any organization being quite as vindictive and vile as that one. So, like really strong uh, Catholic Inquisition mm -hmm. in yeah. in fiction sort of thing. Sorry, Wesley, that's how you're going to jump in. Well, he um, he mitigates that to an extent. I want to say with his newer books that have just been coming out recently, where mm -hmm. he has some more sympathetic portrayals of religious characters 
a more nuanced sort of take on what they're up to perhaps um, and what they even think about other parts of their organized religion. This is still in the other universe, of course. Um, none of his new books have dealt with our universe yet, though we'll see if maybe he gets there, but um, that I know or that I'm recalling. But anyway, um, his, um, his work led me to read Milton for the first time as a kid. Um, made me really interested in what this book was that he takes the epigraph from. And so I read, you know, and then I read his work on Milton, his introductions and some of his speeches and stuff. And he evokes the power of Milton's language and, you know, the uh, brilliance of his his thought and his argument um, in such a way to really, I mean, Fullman was a, a teacher, a, a school teacher, and um, he, he sort of leads you into this this process of reading and maybe reading other sources as well um, to see what actually is said in the book of Genesis because he mm -hmm. sort of rewrites it, you know. Um, well, if you're if you want to know like what's the real story, that that would lead you into that. And so I, um, I I think that my own religious, you know, um, side of myself has been immensely deepened by reading Pullman and sort of being inspired by his writing. Um, and and I, I think that goes to your point about you know he wants you to think for yourself. He wants you to um, be as sort of um, be as open-minded and as critical and as poetic a reader as as you can and a sort of access all of this great stuff that's out there um, as much as possible without a preconceived dogmatic approach to it which is tough because I think you know that's easy to read into his own books sometimes too like if he titles a book um, the Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, which is another yeah. one of his books. Uh, that's sort of like heavy-handed too, right? You're right. He, yeah, he he is sometimes a bit heavy-handed, but I agree. I think I think uh, the these books, not his, his Dark Materials and the Book of Dust are a little. Mostly, they're a bit more subtle about it, and the Amber Spyglass is maybe an outlier. Um, the Book of Dust is is expanding his thoughts in a really interesting way. Um, he described the Book of Dust as the New Testament to his Dark Materials Old Testament back in the day before any of the, any of the Book of Dust was released. And that kind of made it sound kind of awful um, to me. And I was a bit worried about it. And then when La Belle Sauvage came out, which is the first part of the Book of Dust, I was really pleased because this was a story about a young boy called Malcolm who lives in a an inn um, very close to where I live. And um, it's, a, it's a book about him growing up and uh, uh, his uh, adventures he has with a, a boat. And, you know, it's not kind of this huge grand scale um, making a point about religion, which I think some people are kind of wary of um, in Pullman. And I, I just don't think it's um, as, as important as a, a thing as some people make it out to be. Um, you know, he is he is very much interested and focused on storytelling and character. Um, and there's actually um, a quotation I saw in, in Waterstone's uh, bookshop um, recently in Oxford. Uh, what can I tell you about it? Referring to the Book of Dust. The first thing to say is that Lyra is at the center of the story. And this is from a, a blog post he wrote on his website. Um, introducing the Book of Dust. He's saying Lyra is at the center of the story. Lyra is the, the main character in his Dark Materials as well. And I think that always comes back to Bullman. You know, who is the main character? 
what is what is her story um and that i think sometimes gets lost in this conversation about religion and so on and lynn actually um posts a comment uh she's posted a, a, a an article from the catholic herald um titled why christians sh should embrace philip pullman so there are some people um amongst the christian community who are saying yeah no this is good stuff we should be reading it um and i but i i my own point and i think wesley is if i'm understanding you correctly your point as well is that actually he's interested in other stuff apart from uh you know this kind of point about religion it's it's about storytelling it's about um it's about uh, character um uh, is, am i sort of uh, um encapsulating your points well enough definitely yeah i mean i think what we see in these books is a really interesting portrayal of a of a young character who is um so full of life right she's curious she's um imaginative in her own way um uh, and uh there's some tension about that right um at points at which she uh, is spinning out these yarns um get getting herself into trouble getting herself out of trouble with her kind of creative um, spark and her dynamism. Um, and she, we see her sort of um, interpreting a lot of really tough ideas, right? And the way in which she does that reflects sort of her level of understanding and the things that she's learning from her experiences as she goes along. Um, and I think that there's a really cool way in which, you know, the reader is invited to um, inhabit her point of view in certain points. And then the, the masterful storytelling, he sort of will pull back and he'll look at it from this other perspective. He'll allow you, you know, through seeing what she sees to see something bigger, right, that he's kind of getting at. Um, and then within her perspective, there's always this kind of duality of her and her demon who can sort of disagree about things, um, who can have, um, you know, good advice, which the other doesn't listen to, right? Um, and, and this sort of uh, tension is, is sort of in all of these different layers of the story um, that it just it just has this kind of gripping quality to it that um, that I, I don't know that anything else I've read really has. Uh, and as much as, you know, the, the classics that he's stealing from, you know, liberally uh, are things that I've I've also enjoyed, you know, mostly because I got into reading from from, from reading this book. Hmm. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And also Kat points out in the comments um, that La Belle Sauvage uh, seems much more influenced by fairy tales and folklore than religious fantasy, which seems to be his main influence in the first trilogy. Um, yeah, we'll see how that plays out in The Secret Commonwealth. But certainly, yeah, that he does take things in an interesting direction in uh, the first part of The Book of Dust. Um, I just want to... Uh, before we, we we talk a little bit more about religion and move on, I, I'm just sort of wary that people who are not so familiar with Pullman's works might have heard a lot of uh, titles being thrown about. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, his Dark Materials comprises Northern Lights, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. And these all came out in the 90s, um, if you include 2000 as the 90s, the end of the 90s. So 1995, 97 and 2000. And then we had a kind of wilderness time when we just had these companion texts, um, which are, here's one of them, Lyra's Oxford, very, very thin. Um, it's a 
short story it has like some nice paraf you know max maps and postcards and things in it but it's not really a kind of a novel that we were wanting and then um in 2017 we had the publication of La Belle Sauvage, which is, as, as Wesley, you said, it's not a sequel or prequel, it's an equal to his Dark Materials. It's a companion novel. I think he thinks about it as one long novel, although I think um, La Belle Sauvage is quite different from The Secret Commonwealth. I mean, we skip forward 20 years in the new book. Um, and then this book, as I say, has just been released uh, just uh, yesterday. and it will be the second, it's the second part in a trilogy. So we don't know when the third part is coming out, um, but just that's the kind of the, the big picture here. Um, I just wanna, before we move on from religion, um, Kat has uh, asked a really interesting question, aimed especially at you, Faith, which is about um, Blake uh, and particularly Blake's quotation about Milton being of the devil's party without knowing it and Pullman's commentary on that. Um, could, could you say anything about Blake and his Dark Materials? It's It's been a while since I've read, is that in, that's in the Golden Compass, isn't it? Let me pull the quotation. Yeah, I mean, he, he he's also influenced I think he's influenced um, by Blake in artistic ways as well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that there's some beautiful illustrations in these books, um, mm. some of which I think were done by Pullman as woodcuts. Uh, the one and thing I, I want of, to... Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that marriage of kind of text and image is very Blakean. Um, but yes. So, so go on. Um, and that, that's actually something I notice in a lot of Pullman's works um, is, the, is, the image, is the image and text go together beautifully. The one thing I will say about Milton and and Blake, and I'm, it's been a long time since I've looked at that quotation from Blake. Um, Blake, of course, has his own special theology that is, he believes, divinely inspired, and it's very different from the theology that he grew up with. Um, Milton, we talked a little bit, I think Wesley mentioned that Genesis gets rewritten in the beginning of the Golden Compass and Northern Lights. And that's something that many religious readers might have trouble with at, at first to, to see this different alternate text words added to Genesis. But one thing that's very interesting about that is that Milton also adds words and scenes and characters and ideas to the Bible. He's presenting it as a theological work and it tells one particular theological narrative but it isn't specifically a retelling of the Bible. It's a very specific, much like a very directed sermon. Here is what you should think about the the creation story, the fall of man, and even the gospel um, at the end in the last two books of Paradise Lost. So I I would guess that Blake's idea has to do with the fact that Milton too is is taking the Bible and making it something that it wasn't, particularly changing the re the religion to fit his own narrative and theological, or uh, let's even say, um, ph philosophical premises, and then and that might be why why Blake is taking issue with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, and 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 this is something that Pullman is very comfortable doing. Um, it's also something that C.S. Lewis instantly does. Um, mm -hmm. Just takes it in a different direction, um, obviously. Um, and yeah, I mean, just just to think more a little bit more about um, Milton. Um, Pullman wrote an introduction to Paradise Lost where he says that you've got to listen to this poem aloud. You've got to read it aloud. You've got to think about the rhythm, the sound of it. Yeah. Um, Pullman has also talked, he talks a lot about his writing process. He says he can't write to music um, because he has to hear the words in his head. And Chris, you mentioned um, how beautiful Pullman is as a writer. Um, Perhaps there is some kind of similarity between Milton and Pullman, just in a kind of almost mechanical level, and in the kind of the rhythm, the flow, the the music of their writing. Yes, um, and in La Belle Sauvage, there are um, a lot of scenes. Um, La Belle Sauvage is the canoe, by the way. You can kind of see that on the cover. It's the name of the canoe, mm -hmm. um, and much more. But anyway. Um, a large flood, kind of a, a unearthly flood, overtakes England, Britain, the Y, alternate universe Britain. Um, and the children, Malcolm and baby Lyra, she's about six months old at the time, um, and another girl go down the, the Thames, it's very flooded, um, in La Belle Sauvage, Malcolm's canoe. And just the landscape descriptions that that Pullman writes about as they're going past and and the storm and um, he's he's very good with with descriptions of, of land and um, scenery and people he boy he writes characters really well mm. um, you can have a character that's in a scene for one scene and you feel like you you really know that character so I think he um, has these people probably inhabiting his, you know, subconscious and he has to listen to them speaking to him while he's writing, which is why he can't listen to music. Well, there's a, an interesting um, quotation um, by Philip Pullman. He, he, it came from an interview in the Radio Times a couple of years ago. He says, seeing the scene is tremendously important to me. I always have in mind a little checklist. Where are we? Where's the light coming from? What's the weather like? Who's there? Is the door open or shut? Things you'd want to know if you were directing the scene for the screen, I suppose, but I find it helps to build atmosphere on the page. Um, and you do get that sense um, with the landscape and the locations, you know, it. you can see it exactly in your mind, you know exactly where everything fits together. There's a kind of um, geographical sense of uh, you know, moving from east to west, moving through that doorway into that corridor in a way that um, some authors don't sort of encapsulate that, don't um, portray that. I think um, actually Tolkien um, and perhaps William Morris actually are other authors who do get, get that great sense of direction and space and, and Ursula Le Guin as well. Um, so Pullman's not sort of unique on this, but uh, but perhaps he's unique in how much he thinks about the details of those scenes and the details of those characters as well. Um, it, I, I, I know there's a there's a passage you want to read out from um, 
from the secret commonwealth perhaps if you if you read it out that might sort of illustrate something some of the things we've been talking about chris it's um it was one that was released in june so i'm not giving any spoilers away and it's not actually one that delves into his scenery at all but i i wanted to be able to set the stage for um people coming to the secret commonwealth in the first trilogy his dark materials lyra's about 11 12 13 in la belle sauvage she's a baby and now secret commonwealth has gone 20 years in the future. Okay, so we've seen her as a young girl going through puberty, we've seen her as a baby, and we've also seen her her demon, which is this, um, has now settled into the form of a pine marten. His name is Pantalaimon, she just calls him Pan for short. And when she was in his dark materials, she would get into trouble all the time. You know, she would hide in closets and listen to people. She would run across the roofs of, of uh, her version of Oxford, and now she's a 20-year-old, having gone through many adventures. So um, this is just a short little bit. Uh, it used to be you who was impulsive, said Pan, and me who kept holding you back. We're different now. She nodded. Well, you know, things change. This isn't shoplifting. This is murder. I know. I saw it. And maybe by doing this, we'd help the murderer get away with it by interfering with the investigation. That can't be right. That's another thing, he said. What? You used to be optimistic. You used to think that whatever we did would turn out well. <clears throat> Even after we came back from the North, you used to think that. Now you're cautious. You're anxious. You're pessimistic. She knew he was right, but it wasn't right that he should speak to her accusingly, as if it was something to blame her for. I used to be young, was all she could find to say. Wow, that's great. And just to remind- So you don't even have to know Lyra, right? To know yeah, Lyra yeah. now. Absolutely. And just to remind listeners, that is her having a conversation with with her soul, essentially. That's mm -hmm. what pantomime is. It's a, it's a kind of- So her conscious having a conversation basically with yeah. herself. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and that whole concept of demons and, and these animals that that are these manifestations is 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 really uh it's really fascinating and something that i think pullman's really exploring in um the book of dust um faith i i had a, a question for you about this um and this is a bit of a a weak question so bear with me see, see what you can make of it but i i remember talking about homer with someone and they said that there was a bit in um in in homer when odysseus seems to be this, the, it, it's as if um, Homer's making some distinction between different sides of Odysseus. There's a kind of sense of uh, perhaps inner psychology or um, I, something that definitely happens is, is people act um, according to the will of the gods. There's a kind of like distinction. Um, there's a dichotomy in characters. There's a tussling um, in, in some of this older fiction, some of these epics. Uh, I just wanted it. Do you see anything like demons in older literature um, that perhaps Pullman is drawing on? It's interesting that you're phrasing that in terms of the will of the gods, because I think Pantalaimon is actually the opposite of that. Mm, mm. Um, he's not he's not a force that she has to obey because she's compelled to do so the way that in 
a classical epic, you know that Oedipus is going to um, kill his father and marry his mother. Uh, it's a very different thing. I think the thing I'm the thing I'm struck the thing I'm thinking of the most is maybe in the Odyssey. There's a lot of changing shape, a lot of disguise and pretending to be someone else. Athena in particular becomes many of Odysseus's friends at different times and has conversations with him in the guise of those other people. And that's probably the thing I can think of that's closest to the demon conversation. If you think you're having a conversation with your friend and advice you're getting seems wise because it happens to be coming from a deity who happens to know what you're supposed to be doing, um, that that in some ways might be the same as Pantalaimon, who often acts kind of as Lyra's conscience mm -hmm. in some of the older texts. Uh, that's probably the closest thing I can think of. Right, um, but there's there's a big distinction there, as you say, because Pantalaimon is sort of from within, uh, it's just kind of like, mm -hmm. basically it's not sort of from on high, like you get in kind of in Homo or, or whoever. Um, so, so Pullman is doing something quite distinct with this and quite unique in literature. And I think it's opening up all kinds of interesting possibilities as, as you know, was expressed in that excerpt that uh, Chris read out. Uh, the only other thing I would add now is that maybe the chorus in Greek tragedy is more like the demon in Pullman because the chorus is often reflecting internal thoughts that the character can't say or isn't going to say or even right. just elaborating upon them or, or countering the author so perhaps the chorus mm, yeah yeah and and more generally even sort of the, the narrator in literature mm -hmm. um pullman talked talk about the narrator as, as a character in english literature um mm -hmm. and um he talks about he also talked about uh, pantalaimon and demons in general as just a kind of mechanical thing to begin with that he he needed someone for lyra to talk to to, to mm -hmm. work things through um in the first book and then he's only just you know ex he, he hasn't finished exploring what demons mean and what the possibilities of those things are mm -hmm. um and it's, it's really really interesting hearing you talk about pullman in the context of epic because he did um feature in your course on the epic at Signum University, which is available to audit. Um, what led you to include Pullman in amongst uh, uh, Virgil and Milton and so on? Well, the last quarter of that course does talk about modern text. So I didn't just single Pullman out. We also actually read uh, some James Bond and we watched Hot Fuzz and we read Paralandra. Actually, I think you lectured on Paralandra. I did, yes, yeah. Um, those, yeah. <laughs> as I recall. So I was really interested in looking at the ways we don't really read formal epics today except for the, the classic ones. I think many writers have tried to write the English epic uh, from Milton actually to Tolkien to Pullman. And there's often going to be an element in which most of those fall short, partly because of genre. Once you put it into prose format, you lose so much of the beautiful language that makes the classical epics poetical and narrative and oral in lots of other interesting stunning ways but these modern stories do take a lot from those classical epics and i think pullman does it 
just as intentionally as Tolkien and Milton did, maybe not, I mean, he's drawing on Milton as well. And actually there's a lot of Dante in the Amber Spyglass, the third book in the, in the first trilogy. Um, but Pullman seemed like a really obvious choice as somebody who's doing that very intentionally, as opposed to uh, maybe some of maybe James Bond would be a great example. Or actually, we read mm. uh, Thomas Hardy, who doesn't do it the same way. They're they're bringing those things in unco unconsciously. But Pullman's drawing on Dante. He's certainly drawing on Milton. He's certainly drawing on some of the other classical epics, and it seemed. It seemed like it would be awkward to leave him out. Actually, the hardest thing for that class was picking one book. And I would have loved to have done the Amber Spyglass, but it was so long and yeah. you really need the other two to, to work. And so one reason that I chose the Subtle Knife had to do with the way in which it played with crossing over world boundaries, which is actually a really essential part of many epics, moving from heaven to earth to right. hell or a combination of the above and then dealing with immortal and mortal beings in the same place. So he's he's touching on all of those essential epics, epic themes, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And and Pullman gives a definition of epic in his uh, essay on epics, which is in Demon Voices, his collection of essays. Um, this is actually written as an introduction to a book on epics. And he begins, above all, an epic is big. It's about big things, death, courage, honor, war, shame, vengeance. And he goes on mm -hmm. to, to talk about that, um, which isn't necessarily the most sort of subtle or nuanced definition of epic but um there is something about the kind of the bigness of uh, his dark materials and the book of dust which it seems very epic um and i and i know some people dislike the amber spyglass because they see it as too epic too big um losing some of that intimacy of the earlier books that perhaps we've got back to in the book of dust um, is is that something that you you felt, Chris? Because I know you said you didn't like the Amber Spyglass um, when you first read it. I don't know if that opinion has changed, or if you could talk I, more I about think, that. I think you put your finger on it, and and in the Book of Dust, we're back to the more intimate stories. Well, at least in La Belle Sauvage, um, I've only listened to the first three chapters of the Secret Commonwealth, so I can't really speak to that yet. Can we talk about what a great title that is? You know, getting back to Kat's point that it seems like the second trilogy is more interested in fairy tale and, and fairy, The Secret Commonwealth comes from a 19th century book called The Secret Commonwealth of Elves and Fairies. And this Scottish minister went around and tried to write down all of the great stuff about, about um, fairy creatures. And so I'm just waiting for all of that to explode in this new novel. I'm mm. Don't let me down, Pullman. <laughs> It's certainly a, an interesting melting pot, isn't it, of, of different ideas and genres. And um, he talks about this in, in his uh, afterward to the Amber Spyglass when he says, I, I write, uh, I read like a butterfly, write like a bee. I steal from all kinds of areas, uh, all kinds of stories. If my if my if I had a demon, it would be a magpie because I'd be stealing things all the time. And uh, I was thinking back to your point, Wesley, when you said that reading Pullman has led you to read so many other things. Um, it's a, he's a great writer for that, isn't he? He really opens up your mind to stories in lots of different places. 
Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, I'd never heard of the secret Commonwealth, like the original folklore treatise um, compendium weird thing. I tried to read it. Um, I haven't got a physical copy yet. So I tried to read this old copy that had the the uh, the F-shaped S's everywhere that mm. I found online and it was hard going. So I'm, I'm trying to get a copy um, that was put out by, I think, uh, uh, some some publisher that does like the Moomin books that Pullman talks oh, about yeah. a lot, the Tova yeah, Jensen. Yeah. Um, Janssen uh, books like I'd never heard of those but I was reading you know like what are Pullman's favorite books what does he recommend he talks about the anatomy of melancholy as being like the greatest book <laughs> I've never even tried to read that but I you know I like looked it up because he mentioned it being really good yeah. Um, yeah. so there's all there's this kind of wealth of, of erudition and it's a very to me as an American reader you know I was always sort of fascinated by the Britishness of it too you know he's like got this really rich reading voice that he does when he narrates his own books. Um, he has this kind of inside view of, um, you know, the great English um, realist novel tradition, mm. as well as, you know, Milton and Blake and, and the poetic stuff. You know, he lives in Oxford and, you know, I envy you getting to be there, Gabriel, like, you know, you, you're sort of in this place um, that he transports and and uh, infuses in, in, into his writing. Um, he, yeah, he's just a, a, a marvelous um, kind of uh, Pied Piper, you know, sort of like leading you into um, into literature and uh, and all kinds of great stuff. Yeah, he's a real reader's writer, I suppose. And you mentioned uh, um, realist. Um, I mean, there's a fantastic essay again in Demon Voices, writing fantasy realistically, which is well worth checking out. And he talks about um, how what he what his major influences are and he, he talks about george eliot um george eliot's middlemarch most of all um he says i was embarrassed to discover that i felt so much at home writing fantasy because i'd previously thought that fantasy was a low kind of thing a genre of limited interest and small potential i had thought and i still do think that the most profound powerful greatest novels i'd read were examples of realism not of fantasy and, and he talks about um, Middlemarch in the following paragraph. Uh, it's not, it, you know, it, he doesn't fit in with other fantasy writers he, it, necessarily, or at least our idea of them. He doesn't, he doesn't, his books don't necessarily fit alongside some of the fantasy works um, that are on the scene as well. Uh, he's bringing in not just Dante and Milton and Blake and uh, Genesis, but uh, also George Eliot, uh, Jane Austen. Um, and, and then you get this kind of beautiful blend and this mix in his work. Um, he was on the, the Adam Buxton podcast recently. It was just released today. And it's a, it's a wonderful kind of interview with him because you can hear him pottering about in his workshop because um, he's a carpenter as well and uh, taking his dogs for the, his walks um, and their walks and so on. And he talks about how uh, he started off being published as children's literature. So, you know, His Dark Materials was published um, for children, even though I think it is more than just a children's story and it's quite hard to classify. But he said this, this was what really um, helped it find its audience because people who like fantasy uh, know what they like and this doesn't quite fit in with a lot of modern fantasy um and people who who are adults who don't like fantasy 
won't touch anything that has the fantasy label on it. But children's literature, although it, there's a bit of a stigma about reading something for children, um, yet you know it doesn't it doesn't fit into one single genre. It's it's a kind of broad church, um, and uh, these publishers have been very good at marketing the books for different age groups, which is much easier to do than different genres. So I'm just interested in the panel's thoughts on where you would place Pullman. Um, Chris, you're teaching in the, the modern fantasy class at the moment. Would Pullman fit in with the other authors in that class or would he fit in somewhere else? I, I think so. The, the authors that we have in there include Peter Beagle, Ursula Le Guin, Garth Nix, um, Jim Butcher. So we have a variety of people that, that attack this beast that we call fantasy from many different points, but they all have some kind of magic or some kind of uh, Congress conversations with talking animals. I mean, there's some standard fantasy things that Pullman also includes. I think he would fit in with the modern fantasy class. Hmm. But uh, I remember going to Blackwell's with you when you were in Oxford a few weeks ago, and we went looking for Philip Pullman. He wasn't uh, in fantasy. We, he wasn't in fantasy, he wasn't in children's, we couldn't find him. Because it was Oxford, um, he, we, they had their own Philip He was Pullman in the Philip Pullman section. section. Which is where else would you put him? But also that's Oxford. So this is a photograph of, this was taken um, uh, yesterday when the book came out, a big book display in Waterstones. Um, I mean, Oxford really loves Philip Pullman, uh, at least the, the, the book community does. Um, so you know we can give him his own section of the bookshop in Oxford but where do you put him elsewhere do you put him in children's do you put him in fantasy do you put him in amongst Blake and Dante and Milton um and do, do you put him for adults or or children I, I um Wesley you you read him as I read him as a young person um Chris and uh, Faith, you read him as an adult. Did did either of you feel that this was a children's story or that this was for children or did you just think this was a good story? Um, Faith, if you could um, answer first. Well, in the context in which I read him, we had just read Harry Potter and The Once and Future King, mm. both of which I think are also books that you can easily give to children and have them enjoy. And I think something that makes us classify books as children's books tends to be having child protagonists. And certainly all three of those books do at the beginning of The Once and Future King. Arthur is a schoolboy and Harry Potter starts out in sort of high school, middle, late middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. um, and again, Lyra is quite a young girl when we meet her. But I don't think that in fantasy, having child protagonists means that they have to be children's books. I think actually of all the series that have had child protagonists, the one that I've met the most resistance with with adults has been Tolkien, I'm oh, sorry, Lewis, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. When people read that for the first time as an adult, they do feel it's very juvenile. I don't think you get the same feeling for that from from Pullman. Mm. Um, yeah. 
And would you agree with that, Chris? What was your experience of reading Pullman as an adult? Um, yeah, I think children could really enjoy, especially the, the first couple books and um, and then maybe grow up with it. But I was an adult. I had I didn't feel like I was being talked down to um, the way Lewis sometimes. And I love Lewis, but, you know, sometimes he does. Um, so I don't feel that way about Pullman. And, and we've been talking a little bit about Tolkien and Lewis just on the periphery. You've just written this new essay exploring the similarities between these three writers. Is that is that fair to say similarities or are you sort of picking out the differences as well? Um, they all three have a story where some children go out on the water and have adventures. And um, my thesis is that they're all three based on, and it's Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Tolkien's Roverandum, and... Um, Pullman's uh, Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, so the one immediately prior to this one. And I think they're all, all three authors uh, are hearkening back to a, a medieval Irish format called the Imra. And uh, you'll just have to read my essay to get more in depth into it. But it's, um, it, it, they all three hit a lot of the points that the medieval Imra hit. And I think Pullman is, answering Lewis's Don Treader in mm. a lot of ways in La Belle Sauvage. That's kind of my thesis. Um, okay. Doing his Pullman thing, not yeah. imitating Lewis, but like same starting point, different directions. Right. And, and of course, he, I mean, he met Tolkien briefly at Exeter College um, at a dinner. Um, he, he's been very critical of both Tolkien and, and Lewis. Um, but uh, this is his idea of literature. Is you read it, you you have an idea about it. Um, you you disagree with other people. He he says that uh, reading is a democracy. Mm -hmm. um, that writing is a is authoritarian because the writer you know has to decide which words to choose and what they, he means or she means. Um, but uh, reading is a is a democracy, and so there's a, something kind of wonderfully broad about his reading practices and where he draws from and what he responds to. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I'd love to hear more from the audience, actually, about how you came to Pullman, um, whether you've been convinced by the discussion tonight to pick up Pullman, if you haven't already, or whether you already are a converted member of the Church of Philip Pullman, if that's not an oxymoron. Um, I thought we'd, uh, we'd finish with a couple of things. Uh, one is just to mention the exciting news that um, His Dark Materials is being turned into a major new TV series produced by the BBC and HBO. Um, it's coming out in a month's time. It looks very good. Um, I don't know what, what the panel thinks about this. Uh, how are you feeling, um, Chris? Uh, are you sort of nervous about it, excited about it? James McAvoy, I will watch Read the Phone Book. <laughs> it's got um, a fantastic cast. It's and Lyra Ruth looks. Ruth Wilson as uh, Mrs. Coulter. Mm -hmm. I think the cast looks great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Wesley? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I just, again, hope that it kind of brings more people to read these books. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you, Faith? I've actually been really excited about this. I was quite disappointed about the film that came out. A long time ago now, um, one of the things that was troubling for me in the film is they tried to cut out most of the religion and most of the philosophy, and that's the heart of the story. And 
I've only seen that very short, maybe three minute trailer that the BBC released, but it looks as though they're going to embrace that more thoroughly. And I'm quite excited. And of course, yes, the cast is splendid, but I'm really excited to see what they're going to do with the philosophy and the fantasy together. Well, we're, we're all, it's, it's a good time to be a Philip Pullman fan because we've got a new Philip Pullman book. Um, yeah, absolutely adore his writing. I, I think uh, his themes, his ideas, the way he pulls in different authors, but just kind of on a, um, on a, on a sentence by sentence level, his use of geography, his use of space, his use of character, I think is really, um, uh, really divine again to use a kind of oxymoronic expression um we've got a few comments cat says I, I read these books in high school and i'm planning to reread soon since the show is coming out um and joe says i saw the movie uh referring to the golden compass and didn't like it you all have convinced me i should read the book absolutely you should read the book um and uh, please let us know how you get on with it uh, i think you will love the book um and i hope it encourages you to read the others as well um and uh including the ongoing book of dust trilogy and i hope it encourages all of you who are reading pullman to read the people that pullman has been writing as has been reading as well um as uh, as wesley has has been doing um and uh yeah, I, have, I haven't yet read The Secret Commonwealth original yet either, but it certainly led me to Milton um, and, uh, uh, and, and to look at Blake in new ways as well. So Pullman's a great r reader's writer. Um, I thought we would end on, um, oh, sorry, and just a comment from Rachel. I certainly want to reread now since I uh, just read them all really quickly during Dr. Ake's class. It's fantastic that uh, actually, uh, you were introduced to Philip Bullman through um, Dr. Acker's uh, epic course. Um, and it, it, interesting that he fitted in very well to that course as well, at, but he would also fit into a modern fantasy course, um, as Chris says. So perhaps every Signum course should have a bit of Philip Bullman in it. Um, there's an idea. Anyway, or I thought we'd end. Signum course. <laughs> All that, yeah, why not? Well, watch this space. Um, maybe that will happen maybe if you donate enough money you can make it happen just to go back to that idea of the annual fund again um i, I thought we'd just end with a bit of fun we just do a bit of a reading of uh the beginning of the new book since this is a celebration of the release of the uh, of the secret commonwealth um so i thought i would just read out like a page or two and then um we'll see how we go Perhaps someone else on the panel would like to read out a bit, or perhaps even an audience member, if you would like to be unmuted and read a little bit. Um, I'll just start with, oh, firstly, I mean, I don't know what the US editions are like. This is the UK edition. The cool thing about this is if you take the cover off, um, it's probably a little bit difficult to tell on the webcam, but there's like a sparkly under cover, which is the dust. And then you have a bit of text um, on the spine itself, which is really cool. I've never seen that before. And then the inside is beautifully illustrated. Um, but I, I thought I'd just read out uh, a little bit from the beginning. The author's note. Um, uh, Chris, did you say you'd, you'd, what did you say about James McAvoy that you'd watch him? reading out a shopping list or something? Sure. 
Um, well, I feel a similar way about Philip Pullman. I, I would read his shopping list because it would be beautifully written. If it was mm -hmm. written by Philip Pullman and read out by James McAvoy, then I think we've got the perfect dream team there. Uh, but anyway, this is just an author's note, but I think it's, it's beautifully written and it sets up this book. He says, the secret Commonwealth is the second part of the book of dust. The central character, Lyra Silvertongue, once known as Lyra Balacra, was also the protagonist of a previous trilogy, His Dark Materials. In fact, her name was both the first word and the last in that work. In that story, she was about 11 or 12 years old. In the first part of the Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, Lyra was a baby. Although she was central to the story, most of the action of that book concerned a boy called Markham Polstead, himself about 11 years old. In this book, we skip 20 years or so, the events of his dark materials are 10 years in the past. Both Malcolm and Lyra are adults. The events of La Belle Sauvage are even further away in time. But events have consequences. And sometimes the effects of, once we once, of once, what we once did take a long time to become fully apparent. At the same time, the world moves on. Power and influence shift or increase or diminish and the problems and concerns of adult people are not necessarily the same as the ones they had when young. Lyra and Malcolm, as I say, are not children anymore. And then you have this quotation from Blake, everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. You, could, you, you already can see what kind of text this is, kind of profound, but also really focused on character. This is, the, this is Lyra's story. Um, Although, but not too bogged down in details. He's not quite sure if he's if she's eleven or twelve. Um, he's he also has no idea instantly how demons are born. This is a question he gets asked in interviews all the time. He doesn't know because it's not pertinent to the story. The story comes first, and the character comes first. Um, shall I shall I go on a little bit further, or would would someone else prefer to read the first page? I don't know how you feel, panel. Chris, you've already read out a little bit. And I only have the audiobook, so I can't. Ah, is this Michael Sheen? Is that his name? Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, he's just, he, I, I've listened to a bit of that audiobook and it's beautiful. He's, he's just done good omens, so yeah. And he's just had a baby daughter called Lyra. Wow, good for him. Which is very cool. Um, I'll, I'll, re I'll read out a little bit, a little bit more, if I may, if you'll indulge me. I won't do as good a job as Michael Sheen, and then, um, and then we'll end for the night. So chapter one, Moonlight and Bloodshed. Pantalaimon, the demon of Lyra Balacra, now called Lyra Silvertongue, lay along the windowsill of Lyra's little study bedroom in St. Sophia's College in a state as far from thought as he could get. He was aware of the cold draught from the ill-fitting sash window beside him, and of the warm naphtha light on the desk below the window, and of the scratching of Lyra's pen, and of the darkness outside. It was the cold and the dark he most wanted just then. As he lay there, turning over to feel the cold now on his back, now on his front, the desire to go outside became even stronger than his reluctance to speak to Lyra. Open the window, he said finally. I want to go out. Lyra's pen stopped moving. She pushed her chair back, and stood up. Pantalaimon could see her reflection in the glass suspended over the Oxford night. 
he could even make out her expression of mutinous unhappiness. Um, would anyone like to read that, that second page? Um, Faith or Wesley or anyone in the audience? I, I can read it if no one else. Please go ahead. Okay, I'm going to read off your screen since there might be some slight differences in the uh, American stuff. Oh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I know what you're going to say, he said. Of course, I'll be careful. I'm not stupid. In some ways, you are, she said. She reached over him and slid the window up, propping it open with the nearest book. Don't, he began. Don't shut the window. Yes, Pan. Just sit there freezing till Pan decides to come home. I'm not stupid at all. Go on, bugger off. He flowed out and into the ivy covering the wall of the college. Only the faintest rustle came to Lyra's ears, and then only for a moment. Pan didn't like the way they were speaking to each other, or rather, not speaking. In fact, these words were the first they'd exchanged all day, but he didn't know what to do about it, and neither did she. Halfway down the wall, he caught a mouse in his needle-sharp teeth and wondered about eating it, but gave it a surprise and let it go. He crouched on the thick ivy branch, relishing all the smells, all the wayward gusts of air, and the wide open night around him. But he was going to be careful. He had to be careful about two things. One was the patch of cream white fur that covered his throat, which stood out with unfortunate clarity against the rest of his red-brown pine marten fur. But it wasn't hard to keep his head down or to run fast. The other reason for being careful was much more serious. No one who saw him would think for a moment that he was a pine marten. He looked like a pine marten in every respect, but he was a demon. It was very hard to say where the difference lay, but any human being in Lyra's world would have known it at once, as surely as they knew the smell of coffee or the color red. Well, the temptation is just to keep on reading and reading and reading, but um, we all have to... Um... Uh, other lives to live and, and and we can all read these this book in our own time um, but I just wanted to I thought it'd be fun to give a taste for people who were not familiar to Pullman and also just to do something fun uh, for those of us who are already fans of Pullman and excited by the new book um, so thank you very very much firstly to all of you for coming out tonight um, and participating in this live uh, also thank you to you for listening um, or watching later on if you've done that uh, and thank you very much to my wonderful panel um, Faith, uh, Chris and Wesley uh, for coming out tonight and uh, giving us your thoughts on his Dark Materials and the Book of Dust. Uh, hopefully we can do another Philip Pullman event in the future. It would be great to reconvene uh, and talk about maybe the uh, HBO BBC series or um, part three of the Book of Dust whenever that comes out. Um, or perhaps even to reconvene to talk about uh, the Secret Commonwealth once we've read it, and uh, we can we can sort of go into detail about that. Um, but uh, thank you very much all for coming. Uh, does anyone have any last comments or thoughts? Especially to say thank you as well, Gabriel, for hosting. Ah, yeah. very, very you're very very welcome. It's always a pleasure to do anything to do with uh, Philip Pullman uh, and. Uh, it was wonderful to share some of that joy with um, others tonight. So thank you all for coming out. Have a wonderful rest of your night and happy reading, whatever you're reading and uh, wherever you're doing it. So thank you very much and good night. Good night. Night.